Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Treating clients with trauma goes with the territory of being an MFT. However, Trauma treatment, for the most part, has been defined as individual therapy with limited to no active family participation from a family systems theory perspective. We as systemic therapists conceptualize symptoms in terms of family interactions and prioritize family rather than the individual as the primary site of intervention. There's some good reasons why it is better to keep the family together when dealing with complex trauma. First of all, many family members may be traumatized by the other family member's traumatic experience. Second of all, the family has the potential to be an important source of both support and validation for a traumatized family member. Today, we're going to talk about complex trauma with an expert in the field and someone that is always charismatic and makes me think when we talk, and that is Mary Jo Barrett. She's the author of Treating Complex Trauma, a relational blueprint for collaboration and change, along with Linda Stonefish. Mary Jo Barrett is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Contextual Change in Chicago. She holds a master's in social work from the University of Illinois, Jane Addams School of Social Work, and is currently on the faculty of the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration, the Chicago Center for Family Health, and she lectures in my alma mater, the Family Institute, at Northwestern University. Previously, Ms. Barrett was the director of the Midwest Family Resource and has been working in the field of family violence and trauma since 1974 that she'll tell us about. Her trainings and published works focus on the teachings of the collaborative stage model, systemic and feminist treatment of women, adult survivors of sexual abuse and trauma, eating disorders, and compassion fatigue, which we'll also mention today. Ms. Barrett provides consultations, workshops, courses, and other training opportunities nationally and internationally to parents, social service agencies, lawyers, mental health staff, and therapists all around of all affiliations. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you're going to learn a lot. We talk about some good case examples, and Mary Jo is just a charismatic person. I believe you will really enjoy. We will be back after the interview. With Noble, mental health professionals like you can help more people in less time, support a worthy cause, and earn passive income. Clients pay a monthly fee to gain access to automated between-session content, assessments to track their progress, and a messaging feature where they can chat with you directly. The best part? A portion of the proceeds earned through Noble are donated to organizations who are focused on directly impacting the mental health space and trauma-based issues. Join for free at noble.health and begin using our app when it launches in November.
Mary Jo Barrett, so happy to have you on the AAMFT podcast. I first met you while sitting as a master's student in MFT program at Northwestern, where we both have roots at listening to you talk about trauma, in this case, incest. And I remember how passionate you were and how you took something that was so pathological and damaging, but also found strength and health in it. And that's what we're going to do today when we talk about trauma and the family system and your storied 40-year-plus career. But the first question is always, if you've listened to the show, how did you get interested in working with families and trauma? You know, I have two uh, origin stories. I don't know which one to tell. So I might tell both really quickly. The first one is I was an undergrad at Northwestern, and we took this class. I just think it's fascinating. We took this class, and it was community side because there wasn't you know, a lot of classes undergrad about families and systems, but it was a community psych class and you didn't know what the topic was that was going to be addressed in the community until you started the class. You just knew as a psych major, you had to take a community psych class. So I go in, it's a two semester class. I'm 20 years old and the topic was child abuse. And so we had to do research and in turn get involved in the community in that way. And just that year, a woman from Canada who had started Parents Anonymous, so it was like a, based on a 12-step, but to not abuse your kids, had moved to Chicago. And I did my research, found her out from a newspaper article, and went to see her, became her nanny, and she and I started together what was called Parental Stress Services. And it was really, you know, up until that point, so this was 1974, I think, or five, uh, 74, and the child abuse law had just come into being. Before that, you reported any cases of abuse or neglect to the Humane Society. So we took care of animals, which I'm a big dog person and an animal person, yet we took care of their treatment before we took care of kids. So everything was child-based. It was all about investigating. And we were really on the edge. Like, why would you help these terrible parents? And because I wasn't a parent, I was 20 years old, I couldn't work directly. But I helped her set it up and did all this background and setting up the program. And I taught people how to do the hotline and we got groups or, and I didn't do any clinical, but I learned a lot. And as I was sitting there, one, I realized helping the kids alone made no sense. And then I became really attached to these parents and, and saw that even though they were being abuseful, abusing and neglecting, that it was so much more about all the abuse and neglect they lived on in their lives. And wasn't just poverty, although that certainly was a piece. It was what was going on in their marriages, what had happened in their family of origin, that these parents were parenting like they were parented, which is what we do intergenerationally anyway. So then I went right from Northwestern to social work school and just came more and more about community and really, you know, I went to Jane Addams and I was going to be like a little Jane Addams. I really, really started much more looking at what goes on in families from a social political perspective. One more part of my story is that so in 1978, when I graduated from graduate school, my first job was the 
in-home counselor. I was the first in-home therapist for the state of Illinois uh, contracted with DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services. So after the child protection, I went in to the family's homes, to the projects, to the homes, and just worked with the families where there was abuse and neglect cases, trying to keep them together. And as I was with these families, I was like, holy shit, I didn't learn any of this in graduate school. And then went postgraduate to the Institute for Juvenile Research to learn family therapy. IJR is a famous place mentioned many times in our three seasons on the show by people like Celia Falikov and Dick Schwartz. And so many great people came from there. It is such a rich think tank for family therapy. So you always, it sounds like, even before you had the language, thought systemically, looking at these kind of macro and micro factors, but that experience as a paraprofessional at 20 was influential. When did you start thinking about making a career in, in trauma is in the sense of, you know, many people think of trauma as an individual modality. You are a clinical social worker by trade, but you are very respected in the field of family therapy. And your work has always been involving families. How did you take what was individual and make it systemic? You know, I haven't listened to all your podcasts, but I've listened to lots of them. There's something that about people who are drawn to working with families. And I, I don't know, I just, I think it was that community psych class and working in Parents Anonymous. That's why I told that story. It, it was so clear to me that this wasn't a linear bad parent, poor victim. You know, the act of abuse and neglect is linear, literally the act itself. You know, I hit you, I sexually abuse you, I don't feed you. I mean, that's linear. But everything else about it is what were all the contributing variables to treating these this family, this abuse, this trauma. The other thing is, back in the day, we didn't call it trauma. That's a really new thing. And I you know, during our time together, you're going to hear me probably get on a lot of soapboxes. But one of my soapboxes is if you really look at the clinical practices, whether it's individual, social worker, MFT, what you're really dealing with is interpersonal violence. And we don't call it that anymore. And I happen to think one of the reasons we that we don't call it about it is I think so many people do individual therapy because we have a culture of let's not really talk about what's happening. I think we have a culture of like denial, of avoidance. And when you look at trauma, what most people are trying to do with their symptoms, any of their symptoms, if you really look, whether it's alcohol, drugs, self-mutilating, promiscuity, whatever it is, the list of symptoms of trauma is that they're trying to avoid and they're trying to avoid the terrible knowledge, the, the memory, the thought, or the current difficulties in their relationships. And so to do an individual, I just never saw it as effective. And in the research that we've done, just qualitative interviewing, the clients say the same thing. They talk about what has been the most helpful to them is when we address their relationships. Because don't forget, if I'm an adult survivor of abuse, 
I still go home and there's a very good chance my relationship is abusing or neglectful or my, I'm not, I'm struggling with my parenting. And so we still live in families, even if we're working individually with our abuse and it's, and it is an intergenerational. So that's just how I see it. And I saw it like that from from a very early age. The other thing is, so I think individual therapy doesn't truly understand that we live. And back in the day when I first got trained in family therapy, I used to say individual therapy doesn't understand families, but family therapy doesn't understand violence, abuse, and neglect. Because you can't do some of the things we learn to do, you know, the unit of focus can't always be right away between the offender and the victim, you know, if you've got domestic violence going on or abuse or neglect or incest. So family therapy, what I did in my career is just integrate the piece about understanding how violence and neglect, abuse and neglect fit into the treatment. I think as a family therapy trainer, as we both are, that there's this therapist anxiety when a system gets difficult to contract instead of expand. So a lot of times a case a case is relational, but the therapist can't feel like they handle it or can't handle it or too much is going on in the room or they're not getting supervised by a family therapist, an AMFT approved supervisor. So they contract out of their own anxiety when many times you're right. There's nothing more frustrating than a client doing trauma work making a breakthrough with the therapist and then having to go home and translate that to their family or significant others. So what you you were talking about, we're going to talk about today is expanding. Now, some people would argue, okay, what if you're working with a younger person who's been traumatized and the person in the family was the, the cause of the violence or the trauma? How can we make sure it is safe to expand the system and bring people in when talking about this trauma? If you say a younger person, meaning the the child's still living in the family, if the child's still living in the family, if you really think about it, how preposterous is that not to bring in the family? So what I find for people who work with children where there's active abuse and neglect, they just don't know how to do the family. They get overwhelmed and get afraid. They probably realize they need to work with the parents. I think the one piece that that I would say to these the listeners that are saying, I work with these kids and I know I should bring in the families, is that my biggest key is remember the intergenerational. So the parents are also victims of abuse and neglect. I mean, Eli, I can, if I said 100%, I just never say 100% about anything. But where you're seeing true trauma, I mean, true emotional, spiritual, financial, verbal abuse and neglect, those parents and the dynamic in the couple is also trauma laden. And so what happens is the therapist starts treating the parents as one, as the perpetrator. You just can't have a perpetrator victim view when doing family therapy. You can talk about behaviors, as I said earlier, as linear, but the parents for the most part are doing the best they can. I mean, very few people that I've worked with over the years have been sociopathic and or psychopathic. I mean, very few. And uh, the piece is, is that we have to be able to hold both generations of abuse and neglect. And we can't look at it as only the child. And so 
that's complex. I mean, don't forget, we're talking about complex developmental trauma. So that means repetitive, repetitive parenting over the life cycle of the child that is in fact what the parents themselves has experienced over their own life cycle and usually currently. And so we can't get into the parents being villains. And it's a lot to hold on to as a clinician. I mean, and that's the whole other piece about why don't people do family therapy. And I loved your words of contract and expand because the collaborative change model, which is the model I developed over the last 30 years, is exactly that. How do you know when to contract in a session? So how do you know that in the moment, whether it's the parent or the child, they are having a dysregulated moment so that you hold them and hold their abuse and their trauma in the moment before you challenge and expand their reality before you challenge and ask the parent to do it different. In in my latest book, I have the a really good example, which is in the middle of a session, a father jumped up and I really thought he was going to hit his daughter. There was no question. And I jumped up as well. And in the good old structural days, I might have gotten in the middle. But now I understand that when I get in the middle and say to a father, you can't stop or please sit down, that in fact, that could be triggering a whole abuse experience from his family. So instead, what I did is I stood up and said to him, come with me, let's get a glass of water. Can you come with me? Can you get a glass of water? And because he had been in therapy and the whole family knew what I was doing, which was I was trying to regulate his nervous system. So that is an individual piece that I was trying to regulate the nervous system. But because of our relationship, which is relational, he could be with me. I could be with him. He knew how I saw him. We had I had trained them about neuroscience in in my own way. And when we went out to the drinking fountain or to the cooler, he said to me, I said, do you know what I'm doing? He said, yeah, I know what you're doing. Okay, let's go. I got it. We took a drink of water. We took some breaths. And I said, now let's plan how to go back in there. And what do you want to accomplish as a parent? You had already had an alliance with the gentleman and you treated him in a non-pathological way and he was with you. Let's even take a step back. Let's say I have a referral for a teenager where they're having a hard time. Maybe they have experienced trauma in some way, but the parent is not, they're like fix my kid model. So you're coming in, you're meeting a family for the first time with the teenager's experienced trauma, but the parental system is not fully aware or they don't want to deal with these intergenerational uh, ties that bind and these patterns and these sequences of violence. How do you sell it to a family that wants individual treatment for their child to make it relational if that if they're the customer but they don't see themselves as part of it? So let's our listeners like these real practical skills. So you get the call, you're taking the intake, and it is your job as the systemic thinker from the get-go to create the context that this could be family therapy. The parent usually is the person that calls, right? So that's the good news. So I already have them engaged. And usually I do just good old traditional family therapy concept. But let's just say one thing, Eli. In my head, 
It's not an option. So my energy and the context I'm creating is it's not an option to not work with the parents. Do you see what I'm saying? The difference is, is that if I have an individual perspective, I'm going to go, I'm going to just accept their reality. So I think it's really important to even begin for before with the therapist on self is that why don't you do family therapy? And in my new book, uh, we're talking about that. Like, is it because you don't really believe or is it that you're just afraid and don't have the skills? So the first piece is, to me, it's not an option to engage the parents first. And so when they would call, my piece would be good old traditional things like, tell me what's going on. And then to say, you're the expert. I really need to talk to you. I need to understand uh, where you've struggled, what hasn't worked. So I would like to meet with you one or two times first and then introduce your child. So, so for example, I just got a case where they called and said it was sibling incest. And they called and said, we need you to see our son. He sexually abused our daughter. It was just, the DCFS has not taken, they've just investigated, but we want to get going on this. And I said to them, I need to meet with you first. When I took the history and when I talked with them after two or three sessions, I then said, do you want my opinion? Now, what's happened is, of course, I've hoped to woo them with my wonderful personality and sense of humor. But more important, what I did is wooed them with my sense of hope. Like we can do this. The three of us have to be a team. We can do this. This is one of the scariest things that could happen is to have incest between your kids. But we can do it. I'm confident. And here's how I do it. So first work with them and then work with them as a team. When I heard the history it became very clear what was going on between that their adolescent son and their younger daughter. And then I interviewed the kids separately, both of them. And I said, can I now meet the daughter and can I meet the son? The way I did the assessment, which is different, but that's what I do in abuse and neglect cases is and violence is, and same if it was domestic violence in the couple, I do meet everybody separately. Because there are so many things people, and when it comes to abuse and neglect and trauma, don't say in front of each other. So I meet with everybody and then I strategize. And then I come back to the parents and say, this is my treatment plan. This is what I'm thinking. This is how I want to manage. Just got a case the other day where a young adult son, and, and I met the mother and she's clearly, she's incredibly mentally ill and abusive, you know, sort of that kind of maybe Munchausen. I mean, what, just wants her kids to be sick, right? So I'm still doing family, but I met with the kids and said, this is, this is how I think we have to work. You can be a family therapist and change the session context as far as the modality is family therapy but the individual context of each session might be different in this case you're meeting with different parts of the system building these alliances strategizing before you put them all all together which is great and if you think systemically like a lot of our listeners do it comes as commonplace but if you don't it's very difficult i can't see them all together i'm the i'm the individual therapist so well sure you can it's how you conceptualize the treatment. So stick with that example. 
the incest because that is a large part of your work. So when you finally meet the the brother and probably a connotation, you know, incest has, I can't think of many things that have a worse in our field connotation. He clearly is the identified patient. And one, one of the things embedded in family therapy and social work, this idea of seeing strength and health and even the most constrained system, how do you work? I mean, you've been doing it a long time, but how do you work as a young therapist to see strength and health in an offender like that? And then to help him to get out of that identified patient role and to not pathologize him further in order to really involve him in the family therapy and help the family heal. Well, again, it goes back to just your belief system, right? And, you know, so just like you said, I truly believe that I can find something good and likable in each person that I work with. And the other day, this, I'll get back to the kid, but the other day I was working with a family and I was writing as I was working literally in this, I, I'm so old, I can say this kind of stuff. I was writing on my paper, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her, because I hated the mother at that moment. When I got done with the session, you know, and I wrote, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her, keep your mouth shut, keep your mouth shut. I got down with the session, and I literally spent time taking notes to find out what did I really like about her. If you can't initially like, you have to learn to be curious. How did they get that way? I love that. When I give the families, I mean, this is a side, but using your word curiosity, that's the great thing. When I tell people the 12 pillars of health or 10 pillars, I just made it up. I have no idea. But curiosity is one of the most important. And I say that to, to therapists. I mean, curiosity is one of our greatest tools. So back to the son. So when I was talking to him, the minute I met him, I said, hey, do you know why I'm here? And he said, well, of course, I know why you're here with a really snotty attitude. And I, you know, I basically said is, I might see this problem a little different than anyone else you've met. He was sort of intrigued by that. And I said, so do you want to know how I see it? And, and then I literally did a little systemic training where I said what I've already said to you too often in this, in these brief moments, which is, yeah, it was not, that was a pretty poor choice to go in and do what you did to your sister. And that was a bad choice, but I want to understand it. I want to understand that choice. I want to understand it with in terms of, is it something you saw in porn? I want to understand it as, are you angry at her? What I, I, You just didn't get up one day and decide to go in and start fingering your sister or whatever it was. And I said, so I'm, I want to understand. It goes back to the curiosity. And he looked at me like I was alien. Because his parents are furious at him. His father said to me in one of the sessions, I just look at him and I want to get sick. Can you imagine listening, living with that as a teenager? Also, there's another fact. If you don't educate the young man, he thinks telling the truth could get him in further trouble. So it also, in addition to being curious, I think you have to right, explain that you want to understand and you're here to help him and you're not involved with the system that is going to get him further into trouble. So what you just described is when in the collaborative change model, which is a meta model, which you're, you know, very familiar with meta models. So there are interventions that I use 
you know, routinely, but the, a met, it's because it's a meta model. What you just described is what I call creating a context for change, which means you have to not just join the client, but you have to elicit them as part of the, of the context for change, part of the unit of change. And so psychoeducation, whether it's for a three-year-old or four-year-old is the one of the first things I ever do. So I give people handouts and I teach them about the brain, even little kids. And I teach them. So the first, and I teach them what therapy is. I literally say, so let me tell you about the collaborative change model, or let me tell you about family therapy. This is what we're going to do. Eli, I learned that from working with violence, because if you think about it, what is trauma or interpersonal violence? People in a position of power and a position of attachment do things to children or to other people that they don't expect to happen in a relationship. You don't expect there to be physical abuse between partners when you get in your relationship. You don't expect to be abused or neglected. So a person in a position of power and attachment violates someone of lesser power and attachment, whether that's power from race, gender, age. And so I, as the therapist, am in a position of power and attachment. That defines what therapy is. We are influencers and we are to attach. So if I have to be transparent with what the therapy is, I'm doing this now, I'm doing this, wait, let me think, so that nothing is being done to them that they don't feel is a collaboration. Nothing. So do you get what I'm saying? Yes, you, you, you are coming from a safe place. You're partnering with them. You are creating security as this attachment figure, and you're associated with healing and not further damage. All right, so that is a great example as far as siblings. Let me, since I'm enjoying this so much, let me throw an example at you. You can be my supervisor for a second. Here is the context, which a lot of our listeners work with couples and find themselves in it. So I'm, I'm working um, with a couple, a very affluent physician and his wife. They get into arguments several times over the seven-year marriage. They have engaged in what I would characterize as situational violence, but the physician, the gentleman put his hands on his wife and she now had abuse growing up from her father that she was able to go to therapy and heal from and really forgave her father and then went on to have a, a good relationship. Now they are in a cycle. If he acknowledges she wants him to validate that you have hurt me, you, are, you have abused me, but she has also threatened to damage his medical career. So he's at a spot where he cannot own what he did for fear of what will happen. So they get into this cycle and stuck. And he is also someone that is very analytical, black and white, not able to really look past. And his own family trauma, which he won't give much access to, is that he lost his father at an early age and doesn't really know how to deal with his father was also a physician so his life his validation his worth comes from being a physician so the fear that he will lose that stops him but his wife in order to move on needs him to validate that what he did was hurtful and abusive so that i've given you a tough scenario how would you deal with that how long have you been seeing them several months okay 
so as far as I'm concerned, you're still in stage one, which is fine, creating a context. So the couple of things that, that I would do, and it's they sound kind of familiar to me, and I know you do this because this is like a standard intervention in terms of cycles between couples. The only thing that might be a little different is using the language. I call it the victim-survivor cycle. Okay. So the first thing is, is when the couple comes in, I explain my work and my work is basically, and it might sound linear, but just sit with me for a second, that basically the job of therapy for people where there's violence going on or came from any kind of neglect or loss. And I would explain his losing his father and all as trauma that when we are in our worst in our relationships with each other, we are in what I call a trauma mind state. Okay. And you could think of it in some ways an offender mind state, but I stay away from that. So it's a trauma or a survivor mind state. Okay. And our goal in therapy is to get you into an engaged mind state where you're grounded, you can be present, you can watch yourself, you can observe your behaviors. Again, kind of dialectical behavior therapy, observe and describe, but you need all three parts of your brain to, to be engaged. And then what we want is an engaged mind state talking to an another engaged mind state right? That that's the first piece is how as a couple do we get ourselves? So you first get the buy-in about this concept. Then what triggers the trauma mind state is when I feel powerless, out of control, disconnected from my own body and from others and devalued. So those four things I explain to clients, powerless, disconnected, out of control and devalued. And when I feel that, because that's threat in a relationship, right? So when I feel threat, any kind of threat, spiritual, emotional, financial threat, which he's feeling a emo- financial threat, she's feeling emotional. So we define the threats that we are each feeling in this relationship. And when I feel threat, I go into a trauma survivor mind state, which means then we have to find out what do I do? How do I survive that feelings of powerless, right? So what do I do to regain my power, regain control? And this language I'm using with you is the same language I use with the gangs on the south side of Chicago. I was going to say it's beautiful, it's understandable, and non-pathologizing. Yeah, it's great. You and I are the couple, Eli, just to use names. How Mary Jo feels powerless, out of control, and devalued and disconnected then what are the things I do? What do I think? What do I feel? How do I behave? And what I do to regain power and value triggers your your trauma mind state. So when I come after you to hit you, or when I threaten the finances, or when I avoid you, or when I go and get drunk, or when I leave the house for days, or when I cut myself, whatever I do to survive from that threat usually triggers your threat. So I see you cutting yourself triggers your threat. I have an affair. I go, uh, I drink. I threaten you with money. I go to hit you. It then threatens Eli's threat. I mean, threatens Eli's mind state. You then do go into your trauma survival mind state. And then whatever you do threatens me. And so we are in this constant cycle of 
threat response, threat response, threat response. First, they have to get it, the cycle. Then we work on techniques like that's why the father, when he was in his threat response with his daughter, that when I left to get a drink of water, he had learned that drinking water calms the threat response. He had learned that. Now, granted, I had been there to interrupt it. If I hadn't, maybe it still would have hit her, but that's the process of therapy. Enough of those repetitions when I can say, hey, Mark, you need to, let's get a drink of water. He got it. By the time we walked to the cooler, he had already regulated himself. One of the keys to your approach in any good family therapy is getting the buy-in from all members of the system. So as you just said, what you beautifully said in, in accessible language, no matter what the developmental level or socioeconomic status of the client is, is framing it in a cycle. But both people have to buy into that. The problem with domestic violence, especially when a man puts his hands on a woman or incest, which is so, is, is that people want the perpetrator to take accountability for that before they start to see the contextual factors that led up to that. It is not as easy as framing it as a couple communication or a teenager that is testing limits with their parents. So how do you address, in this case, in my example, the woman who really wants him to own this? And until he does that, she is not going to relent. And the more she threatens him, the more his trauma response comes out, as you said. So partly what I would do in that case is one, still explain that cycle because that his trauma response, she has to get it. She has to get what she's doing. The other thing, and if you read my incest book or even the current one, you're absolutely right. And so is she. Acknowledgement is one of the most crucial, I call it an intervention, but a step in the process of healing from abuse and neglect. There has to be an acknowledgement. Now, one, she needs to also acknowledge that she's part of that cycle, right? But he does need to acknowledge. She's absolutely right. So then the question is, how do you get through acknowledgement? I want to address one thing you said first, which is most therapists don't think that you can work with an individual, right? And to get them to acknowledge so that they don't see it as acknowledgement is part a part of the process. And so when people deny, when they say things like, it wasn't as bad as what she said, or it didn't happen that way, or if she hadn't done this or that, then I wouldn't have hit her, let's say, or grabbed her. So there's two pieces about that. One is, as I said, even at the beginning of the podcast, we live in a world of denial in order to cope. That's, that's I think, partly why people don't do family therapy is they don't want to face what I call the terrible, painful truths. They don't want to acknowledge that, that parts of themselves to talk about dick. <laughs> you know, um, they don't want to acknowledge that. And so when I'm, I do work with people individually to get, to the acknowledgement so that you can talk about their vulnerabilities without them being shamed in front of her. So for example, in the case you're talking about, once I would get them the buy-in of the cycle and the importance of acknowledgement, that acknowledgement is an apology, it's under its healing and the importance of that in the healing, I would probably work with him. And when it comes to physical violence in couples or with children, 
there has to also be the buy-in is I don't want to be an incest perpetrator. I don't want to be a domestic violence perpetrator. So he has to own on some level, and that might be with his work with you, that, yeah, bottom line, she could do whatever she wants, and I shouldn't grab her. I shouldn't. And that's, do we have a nonviolence contract, which is partly once I hear there's any violence, you got to get the buy-in on no violence you know, goes back to the linear. Like, are we in a nonviolent zone? When people work with a population like this, therapist burnout is high. So if you are going to do this type of work, you got to have healthy boundaries. You have to have a good work-life balance. What are the keys to not burning out working with high trauma family systems? I always promote myself. You should have me back so we just have a, an hour conversation on this. Because I have a theory that I kind of developed back with Charles Figley about compassion fatigue. I really see it as an energy exchange and that we are giving out so much energy all the time in our work. I mean, and on all five levels, we give out emotional energy, intellectual, physical, spiritual, and sensual energy to our clients, to the families. And for us in our profession, where we're unique, that's the same energy we give out at home because it's relational energy. So when we come home, we have to give out energy. I often say to my husband, I gave it the office. Like, you know, so it's like coming home. My tank is empty. empty. Right, my tank is empty. That's the best way to look at it. And as therapists, we wait till we run out. And that doesn't mean that I don't think we get a lot of energy from our clients, but usually it doesn't give us the balance. So saying that, if you looked at my life, you would say Mary Jo Barrett is one of the most self-indulgent human beings in the world. Because I would say to you, I do something to fill myself with energy probably every hour and a half or hour, two hours, let's say, if we have a 50-minute hour <laughs> or a training. So, for example, just setting up the podcast, okay? I'm very much into having to be able to look at nature as much as possible. So I set my computer up so I could look out the window. I'm sitting with a cup of tea in my favorite mug. I'm holding it. It's really warm. I planned that. Okay, I have flowers in my office so I can see or smell flowers. These are things I've learned over time. When I get done talking to you, I planned 15 minutes to go work out. I've already made my lunch, so it's sitting there and it's a lunch that I know will not make me tired. I am obsessed with how I give myself energy. So you're very intentional and you have a ritual of preparation, especially when you're working with difficult systems that, that keep you grounded. You're aware of your own energy. And that's one of the things I remember about you from 20 years ago. It's just like, yes, it takes a lot to be curious at that level and to stay engaged and engaged other people. And part of it is because you balance that on the other end with taking care of yourself and your self-care. Now, I don't know this about you, but I would guess from this too, what also helps you to work 
with populations like this and prevent burnout. I, I think you're probably a pretty spiritual person too. And sometimes in family therapy, we don't necessarily talk about that, but I think it's so essential, especially when you're talking about dealing with horrible traumas and things like forgiveness. And I guess I wonder how important that is to you both personally and professionally. 30 years ago, literally, when we started doing the research, the follow-up about even to the point where I've interviewed three times my very first client ever, we were asking questions about what did the clients think changed, sort of like a Scott Miller, like what did we do that was helpful, really getting the feedback. From- yeah, we call that a pivotal moments question. What What is the pivotal moment in this therapy, the difference that made a difference for you? Almost all the time, they would say things, obviously, as we know, the relationship with the clients. I have five things that we took out of the research, but one of them was that from the therapy that the clients felt, and this is my words that I took from the interviews, that they created a meaningful vision of the future. Okay, that the clients literally said between the values and the attachments that they had in the therapy with the therapist and then broaden, and this is really essential, that they also then from the therapist helped the entire family get hope. And we asked about how did that develop? How did they, believing that people could change, finding strengths oriented, all the things that we know about family therapy. When, as they were talking, as I heard hours of interviews, I was like, wow, me as a clinician, I have to have a belief system. I have to believe in the the basic of good. I have to believe that change can happen. I have to believe that the cycle of the of nature is just like the cycle of change. That when we look at the sky and the world, that we might be in a climate crisis, but if we change things in the system, we still potentially can heal the earth. And that same thing happens in families. And I realized, how am I in touch with my personal spiritual belief about human beings, about nature, about whatever a higher powerful source could be? And I noticed I had not been meditating. I had stopped being involved in my religious community. I wasn't doing any form. And I was a meditator since I was 18. I learned transcendental meditation at 18. And I had stopped meditating. When I heard that from the clients, I started back my practice of celebrating more religious holidays of really understanding my Jewish tradition. I also spent a lot of time really celebrating, not trying to take away, not celebrating, I'm sorry, but understanding, particularly for Native American people, how their relationship with the earth was. Because I realized that was where I really developed the collaborative change model, is that I believe change is a natural process and that we need to do in the therapy room what nature does outside that we need to follow those cycles of change in a repetitive way in the therapy room. The same cycles that happen to create change in human relationships is what happens to have a tree grow. You know, I love that analog because sometimes we'll work with clients and they may not have any 
religious or spiritual beliefs, but this kind of commune with nature and, and the parallel process to how change happens is so wonderful. And again, as most things we do in therapy, you learned this from your clients by interviewing them and talking to them, and you realized you were kind of out in balance. So when you're feeling that out of balance, what's some tips to get back in when you're working with the population like this? We haven't had much time, but I sent you that look at link. I don't know if you got a chance to look at the work I'm doing on the south side of Chicago with the gang members and their families. But what's so f- interesting, even with gang members and their families, is the exact same process I do with upper middle class white family. And so For example, in the process that we're doing when we take violent gang members and their families out into nature, we take them to a camp and we call it passages. It follows a collaborative change model. It's a long involved process that I won't go into, but what part of our day, which is the exact same thing that I'm talking about is we've taught literally the most violent gang members. Every single person has been shot or has shot somebody that's in our, that's on our passages in our process. We teach them yoga, but we teach them Egyptian warrior yoga and they all are meditators. We practice meditation and every day, and we do exercise every single day as part of the healing process. And so those are the three things that I do every day. I exercise, I meditate, I practice some kind of spiritual yoga to get in touch with my body. I really take a moment throughout my day to have gratitude and hope. Because I'm committed to doing this work, and I truly believe Without that, we can't do this hard work. And I think family therapy is hard, which takes us all the way back to the beginning. I think that's why more people don't do it. I think they could believe that, of course, if you just think about it, of course, if I'm working with an adult woman, I should be seeing her husband. Like sending her back when he has no idea what's going on in the therapy room or what she or he is experiencing. I think we all would say just common sense tells us but it's it's hard it's hard it is so hard and i have gratitude for this conversation today so as it comes to a close you've referenced it several times i think one of the things you're also in in addition to your collaborative change model you're known in chicago for the center for contextual change so i want you to tell us how that is shifting for you in this next stage of your career and please you've referenced it several times tell us about the new book Okay. The Center for Contextual Change, really catchy name, but whatever. I uh, started 30 years ago. It grew to a very large a program that treats perpetrators, victims, children, and obviously with a systemic model. It grew to about 30 therapists. And I am now in my, I guess, getting to be my late 60s. And I made the decision that it was too much to supervise all those people. I, I'm not retiring. I, the way I look at it is I'm rewiring and reorganizing. What I'm doing is I've launched, using a family metaphor, I've launched 30-some therapists, and now it's just two of us, who Anita Mandley and myself, who are doing we're writing, we're doing trainings, we're each seeing clients, but mostly we're trying to make it a systemic training center. Anita's specialty is post-traumatic slavery, 
cultural and racial trauma and in the family and the couple but bringing the historical trauma in. And so we have are really making it a systemic training center. So that's where I am, you know, it's sort of legacy, I guess, time. I heard Monica say on her podcast with you, she doesn't care if people don't remember her name. I don't either. I don't either. But I do want to leave a systemic a body of knowledge about true systemic treatment in complex developmental trauma. So that's where I'm focusing now. That's awesome. Let's talk about the book. So Linda Stonefish, who teaches family therapy in the Department of Social Work at Syracuse, this will be our second book. Our first one was Complex Developmental Trauma. It was a more generalized book. And now we, I don't know, the working title is sort of the missing link, but I don't know what, or we're all in this together, but it's going to be a very hands-on, sort of like the handbook Terry Trepper and I wrote about incest. It's going to be a handbook where there's going to be interventions, handouts, exercises that therapists will do for themselves, that will also they can do for their families, with their families. And so there'll be a, it's a, a systemic treatment of complex developmental trauma is what it is. There'll be theoretical at the beginning, really teaching people. And then it'll be very much a handbook of, okay, I'm going to endeavor in doing some of this family therapy. What are some things I can do? If somebody wants to, as many of our listeners will, contact you directly after this and continue the dialogue and get some of your energy exchange, so to speak, how, how should they do that? What's the best way to get all of you? The, the best way is go to www.centerforcontextualchange.org and contact me through that because if you contact me directly through my email, you might not ever hear from me again. So, so that's the best way. And uh, I think the other piece is if people are really, really interested, Anita and I are going to be doing trainings that could be a year, two years. We're hopefully starting in the fall where people will can be trained in in doing systemic treatment and. They don't have to fly to Chicago. Hopefully we'll we'll get it done. So that's the other piece is that certainly get on the webpage, the Center for Contextual Change dot org and sign up to be on the mailing list so that they'll know when we are starting this training program that will hopefully be not AMFT approved, but at least a, a certification that they've gone through a systemic two-year program on how to work with interpersonal violence and trauma. Eli, back with you, wrapping up another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. That was a lot of fun to do. I enjoy Mary Jo Barrett's energy and passion for our profession, certainly complex trauma. If you're going to be in the field a while, you are going to work in those scenarios that we mentioned during the interview. Once again, the book, Treating Complex Trauma, A Relational Blueprint for Collaboration and Change from Rutledge, Mary Jo Barrett, and Linda Stonefish. Excellent. In addition, Mary Jo's other books for around incest is a classic in the field and also some really practical skills and tools for working with a very difficult family situation. You can always check her out again at the Center for Contextual Change. We love getting feedback from you, the listener. That's how we inform 
our shows and we're now planning for our fourth season in 2022 and a lot of great suggestions have come by dropping me a line you can do that Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also go to www.elikaram.com. You can follow the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live, and the AMFT is at the AAMFT. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.